The scripture reading this morning is Psalm 34. In your leaflet, uh, you were handed out Psalm 34. And we're going to sort of read it together. I'm going to read a section, and then you have a section in bold there that you're going to respond with. So uh, look at your leaflet and grab it so we can do this well together. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Well done. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Those who fear him have no lack. The young lion suffers want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. O come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil. Keep your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them of the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. The affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Blessed is he who trusts in him. So, we're going to look at Psalm 34 this morning. The Psalms, uh, we often associate them with singing and with something we do in our daily devotional lives uh, down through the not just the centuries but the millennium the psalms have been read uh, often through in in an entire month people read all uh, 150 psalms but they're not often preached on uh, because they're a bit unusual because they don't fit into a regular uh, sort of three-point sermon set or exegetical analysis because uh, there's nothing more boring than taking on an exegetical analysis of poetry. Uh, but we're going to attempt to pray through and read through this psalm together, and I'm going to invite you to participate in it as we go through. The first point I'd like to make, though, if you notice in the heading just below where it says Psalm 34, it says this, Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. 
Now, that's supposed to give us a context of what was going on in David's life when this happened. The problem with this title is that David never in his life stood before anyone named Abimelech. In fact, the only time anyone named Abimelech is mentioned in the whole of Scripture, with the exception of this one spot, is in Genesis, like chapter 21 or something like that. It's the only other time it comes up. So why the Scriptures, why the psalmist has titled it this way, and why there seems to be this apparent error in in what was going on in David's life at the time, Um, either this wasn't a psalm by David or he wasn't in front of Abimelech, I don't know. There's a lot of theories. I have no idea why it is what it is. I just think it's interesting that there's this apparent uh, tension right at the beginning. Anyways, that has nothing to do with the rest of the sermon. I just think it's interesting. So here we go. Let's dive into Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. The first thing that I want to point out is notice how it begins personal. David is saying, I, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will be on on my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. But then he very quickly invites us to join in with him. So all of you, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. So David in the psalm begins on a personal note, but immediately pulls us in and invites us, the readers, to join with him in his praise, which kind of begs a certain question. Well, what are we praising for? By this introduction... Simply saying, I will bless the Lord all the time. I will praise will be continually on my mouth. What do you think might be going on in David's life at this point? I'm going to always bless the Lord. What's going on in his life? What do you assume when you hear someone say that? I'm just going to bless the Lord. Isn't it great? Hmm? Celebration. Sounds like things are going well for David, right? You're in that state of mind where everything's great. I'm going to bless the Lord. I'm going to praise the Lord. I'm going to, I'm going to make my, my soul's going to boast about the Lord. It sounds like everything is going well, that their spiritual life is in a good place. But one of the questions is, is this realistic? Can you think it, think it being possible that you could bless the Lord all the time? Praise continually on your, on your lips. Can you think of another passage of scripture where something like this comes up? Someone else quotes this almost exactly. You remember where it is? First Thessalonians chapter 5. The author writes this. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. But the question is, is this realistic? Can you actually praise and bless the Lord always in all circumstances and continuously? On a scale of 1 to 10, how have you fared on that? Pretty high and saying pretty high? Oh no, you said low, sorry. (laughs) I mean, I guess one of the advantages if you did this is if you were constantly blessing, constantly praising, constantly boasting about the Lord in your soul, 
you'd have a lot less time for grumbling and complaining and thinking about your woes, wouldn't you? You'd have less time to talk about other people or grumble about them. So Paul sets, or Sir David sets us up with this. I'm going to bless the Lord. I'm going to do it in all circumstances. My soul is going to boast, and I invite you to do it with me. So then David says in verse 4, he says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from my fears. Now, when he says, I sought, it doesn't mean that, you know, he was just going about his day and he happened to see God. It wasn't that he was sort of stumbling about, maybe I'll see something about God today or I won't. This word sought means that he was earnestly seeking. He was almost pursuing God. He couldn't quite find him. He wasn't quite sure where God was at this moment. Some of you have been in that place where things are not going well, where where the things are crumbling around you. You know you're supposed to be blessing God in all circumstances and constantly worshiping and praising, but it's really hard because you can't see God in this thing. You can't see Jesus around you. And so what David says to do is to seek out the Lord. He, He sought him. He pursued him. The image I, I used earlier this morning is, how many of you remember the Warner Brothers cartoon, Pepe Le Pew, right? That poor cat is constantly pursued by the skunk. Now, normally when I use that image, I'm referring to uh, us as the cat and God as the skunk. But in this particular context, David is pointing out that, no, we too have to be like the skunk, constantly, constantly pursuing, seeking out that which seems to be elusive. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. And as I sought him, he delivered me from my fears. He goes on and says, Those who look to him, those who look to God, are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man, referring to himself, this poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. When you read those, especially verses 6 and 7, does that give you a different context for what was going on in this psalm? Remember we said by reading verses 1, 2, and 3, it sounds like things are going well for David, that, you know, everything's rosy, everything is coming up millhouse, everything is is doing what, what he wants. Everything is going well for him. But then you read this, this poor man cried out and the Lord heard him. If you know the story of David at all, you know that much of his life did not, was, did not always go well. In this particular context, it seems that David is in the midst of fleeing from his father-in-law who wants to kill him. Now, sometimes that's just a reality of married life. But, but in this context, it's more than that for Saul, right? Saul wants to kill David because David wants the throne. Well, David doesn't want the throne, but God is giving the throne to David, and Saul's upset about that, and people like David, and they don't like Saul, and, and so Saul is wanting to kill him, and so David is on the run, and he has a group of people with him who aren't great people to be with, but they've chosen to be on his side, and, and he's now actually having to go and present himself to an enemy king and, and pretend to be crazy, to be, pretend to be out of his mind. And that's where he takes shelter. Isn't it interesting that he can say, I will bless the Lord all my to- all, at all times. Praise shall be continually on my mouth when that's the context. 
We now know the reason for these opening verses. Then he writes, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. What do you think of when you hear that verse? Taste and see that the Lord is good. What other things come to mind? Food? Is that a Williams who said that? <laughs> Was that Keith who said that? I, I wasn't sure. Oh, oh, sorry. Taste and see that the Lord is good. What else pops into your mind when you hear that verse? Taste and see. Any other passage of scripture or story pop into mind? In in our church this morning, we, we always read more than one passage of scripture. So the gospel reading this morning was John chapter 6. Jesus says in that passage, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst, taste, and see that the Lord is good. He goes on and writes, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Think of Jesus at the Last Supper. Right When he's breaking the bread and he's passing it around, he's taking the cup and he's passing it around. And he says, this is my body broken for you. This is the blood, my blood which is shed for you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Remember the picnic on the beach after the resurrection in John's gospel when Jesus is growing the fish for the disciples who've returned to their old ways. And they taste the fish that Jesus had made for them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Or think of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, right? What Jesus, after walking with them for a while, takes bread and he breaks it. And what happens when he breaks that bread? What happens to, the, to these disciples? Their eyes are open. They see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. David says, blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is he who takes refuge in the Lord. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. What does it mean to fear the Lord? We all know what fear sometimes is. For some of us, it's spiders. Right? Or sharks. Jaws fan. Maybe you grew up in a household where you were afraid of someone in the house. I don't think that's what this means. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? Awe? Respect? You are in the presence of something so much more than you. God is God. You're not. God is this incredible presence who when he speaks, cedars break, rivers change their course, birds are given life, stars are placed into the galaxy. We ought to fear the Lord Not because of a fear that comes out of terror, but because we're in the presence of the Almighty One of the universe. 
Oh, fear the Lord, you saints, because you can come before Him. You can humble yourself before Him, and those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer and suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord, those who want to be in the presence of the Lord, lack no good thing. He says, come. So again, he's addressing us. David is inviting us in. Come, come, oh you children. Listen to me. I will teach you about the fear of the Lord. I will teach you what it means to fear the Lord. Because it doesn't mean to tremble in terror. Let me teach you what it means. He says, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from doing evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Think of those two verses there, 13 and 14. Are there any other passages of Scripture, perhaps from the New Testament, that jump to mind when you hear things like that? Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Any other passages that jump up? James, right, about the bridling the tongue. That's a good one. What else? But Romans chapter 12, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil. Whenever it is possible, as it depends on you, live peaceably with one another. Or Ephesians chapter 4. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth but only such is good for building others up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear when you speak does it always bring grace to others the words that come out of your mouth does it always bring grace and peace and hope to the person hearing it or is it sometimes corrupting Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, Paul writes. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. That's possibly one of the most terrifying lines that Paul writes. Be kind to one another, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. This is what it means to fear the Lord. This is what our life ought to look like when we live in fear of the Lord. Peter writes about this too. In his letter, he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers over a multitude of sins. Show hospitality without grumbling. Whoever speaks ought to speak the oracles of God. This is what it means to to fear the Lord, to have a faith, to have a way of being with God, of pursuing God, that you, you fear the Lord and this is what your life looks like. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil and cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their trouble. The Lord is near the brokenhearted, and he saves 
the crushed in spirit. Now here a familiar uh, refrain comes up in the Psalms, this idea of the righteous over here and the evil ones over here. It's a common refrain, but what does it actually mean? Who is righteous and who is evil? Right, this is the exciting part. This is where we get to categorize people, right? They're the evil ones. These are the righteous, right? How often, where do you, you normally put yourself? How often do you say, oh, actually, I'm over on the evil side right now, if I'm being honest? We're really good at understanding ourselves as being in the righteous camp, right? In our faith, in our theology, in our ways of dealing with people, and in, in, in when we have a disagreement with someone at work or in the workplace, right, or in our families, we know that we're right. We're on the righteous side. But really, would others always place you there? Is there a chance that others look at you and sometimes put you over here? It's terrifying to think, isn't it? The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's comforting when, we, when a couple of names immediately pop into mind with that. They'll be cut off from the memory of the earth. But is there a chance that our name might be on that side of the ledger too? See, righteousness has at least two parts to it. The first means a, a right alignment with God, our lives, and that's, this is sort of what Paul or David talks about before. Our, our lives need to be in, in right alignment, in right obedience with God. We need to be in right relationship with God. But righteousness has a second side to it. It's like a coin. It has another side. And righteousness also means a right alignment with others. With the person sitting right beside you. With the person you lie in bed with at night. With the person who you work alongside with. With the person who lives on the other side of the fence from you. With the people that you disagree with most heartily. We need to be in right alignment with others. It means being at peace. Bearing others pain and sorrow and even their guilt. That is righteousness. That is righteous living. That puts you in the category of the righteous ones. Are you a peacemaker or are you a muck disturber? Do words like righteous cry for help or brokenhearted or the crushed or poor in spirit or those who seek peace make you think of any other passage of scripture? Any other gospel? Beatitudes. Absolutely. Jesus draws on this passage when he's giving the Beatitudes, it seems. God is on the side of the brokenhearted, the crushed in spirit, those who seek peace. Are you sure you're righteous? Maybe the question we ought to ask of ourselves each week as we come to church, each week before we receive communion, Maybe the question we ought to ask ourselves is, what did I do this week to help bring reconciliation? Or what was I doing this week that was making peace? Or that was lifting up the brokenhearted? 
How did I in any way bring about healing to someone who is wounded or hurt? See, these are questions of righteousness, and they're questions of righteousness because they are questions concerning the mission and the kingdom of God. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, says David. But the Lord delivers him out of all of them. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. You see that contrast there again. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Well, a passage like this begs an obvious question, does it not? If God is on the side of the righteous, then why are they afflicted in the first place? If God is on the side of the righteous, then why do they need to be rescued by God at all? That's a tough question. If God is on your side, why do you need protection? Passages like this, you see, are good to keep in mind when people try to teach us, and this is a theology that's out there that we have to look for, that good, faithful Christians should never suffer, that they should never get sick, that they should never face oppression, or that they should never be tempted, or that they should never get sick, or that, they, uh, uh, that you should be able to count your blessings in terms of dollars or smiles or goods or lack of illness. That's a bad and dangerous theology that completely contradicts the teachings of both the Old and the New Testament. Because David has already said, the afflictions of the righteous will be many. But what do we make of a God who allows those who are on his side to be afflicted? The Psalms, you see, express a messiness and complexity of what it means to have a faith in God. They're not clean. They haven't been scrubbed. They're honest and they're disturbing and they ask questions and don't always give answers. It's messy and complex to have a faith in God and follow the God that we do. See, the Old Testament stories, I love the Old Testament stories. I love hearing the stories about God loving us and, and pursuing us and, and, and re- trying to redeem us from a fallen state. But sometimes I have a hard time relating to someone like Moses or, Josh, or Joseph or Joshua because I don't have the faith that Moses did. I don't have the confidence that Joshua did. I don't have the wisdom that Joseph did. So I have a hard time connecting with those stories sometimes. The Gospels are incredibly important. They're central to our theology and our faith because they reveal to us the nature of God and his kingdom and his incredible love for all of us. But I find putting myself in those stories is sometimes amiss for me. Paul's writings and all the writings of the epistles help us better understand the implications of Jesus' death and resurrection and his kingdom and about how we're supposed to live out that faith and about what it looks like to be a Christian. But at times it can get heady and a bit theological and I can be detached from it. But the Psalms are right there in the midst of the messiness and confusion of my life, of my faith, 
of just me trying to live out what God is asking of me. The Psalms are raw. They get angry at God sometimes and they call Him to task. They cry out aloud and they rejoice both to the extremes. God is awesome. I'll always praise Him. I'll always love Him. Where are you, O God? You have forgotten me. How long will I suffer? The Psalms take us to both extremes. Are you troubled? Afflicted, broken-hearted, crushed in spirit. Don't worry. God is on your side. Really? Because it seems to me if God were really on my side, then maybe things would be going better. Often through the rawness, though, and the honesty of the Psalms, when we look into them and not just read them, but pray through them and chew on them as a cow chews its cud, if we live with them and sit with them, we can begin to see hope. And if you look real hard, you can see shadows and glimpses of Jesus, the one who helps the troubled, one who heals the afflicted, the one who draws near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed of spirit. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. Amen.